Drax is the largest provider of renewable electricity in the UK and plays a critical role in ensuring a secure energy system. The company has plans to invest billions in new infrastructure, such as bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which will create thousands of jobs, whilst also delivering the energy needed by homes and businesses up and down the UK. Discover more at Drax.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Heal. Tax levels in the UK are at their highest since records began 70 years ago and are unlikely to come down, the IFS has said. James, tell us the details of what uh, has come out today. Yeah, sure. So the Institute for Physical Studies, obviously very influential think tank in Westminster, has today released a big report forecasting that taxes will amount to about 37% of national income by the time of next general election next year. And it says that you know, the, the government will collect upwards of 100 billion more in tax compared to pre-2019 levels. And so this is really a report looking at how the tax burden has increased over the course of the last four years of this parliament. Fraser, is it much of a surprise? We've known the tax burden is high. We've known that we often hear about, you know, Tories saying we have to cut the size of the state, but then get rebellions of whenever, you know, a prime minister or a minister tries to do that. Well, there are two sorts of people out there. There are those who read the Spectator's Data Hub and therefore will not be surprised at this because all of these <laughs> figures are are there every single day. The two types of people in the country, those who read the Data Hub and, and those, those who, who don't. don't. Yeah. Those who don't are more prone to be surprised when it emerges that so much of these narratives are nonsense or, or when the obvious is stated in a headline-grabbing way. Now, the great thing about the Data Hub, of course, is it makes you less dependent on spin from overexcited journalists. It gives you an overview of what is happening. You can see, look at the Data Hub, we had it for months, that the tax burden is going to be the highest since um, 1946, when Britain was emerging from a post-war economy. Now, that's been on our Data Hub for months. The IFS is simply pointing this out, and it's been written up today as if it's a big news story. Not to spectator subscribers, it won't be, because our Data Hub tells you everything. And of course, James, this is being released on the eve of Tory party conference, where we already know probably one of the themes on the fringes will be tax cuts. Do you think we're going to see another push for this if we think about things such as a growth rally, which will have Liz Truss at it? Yeah, I certainly do. I think that taxes is one of those issues where uh, there's been conservative frustrations for you know, years now under Boris Johnson. Obviously, with the 2021 tax uh, rises he agreed to in terms of national insurance and corporation tax. And I think that you know ahead of the autumn statement, and in the spring budget, the likely budget next spring, we're going to see more of these calls um, because I think that Conservatives do feel the sense of, well, why aren't we getting, first of all, any kind of Conservative sense of that this government, you know, after 13 years in power, taxes are at the highest level since the war. And also, I think people think that, you know, we need to release some kind of feel-good factor into the economy. And so I think that it will be a pressure. Jeremy Hunt will face it, though, of course, he's weathered it thus far. And Fraser, just on that, I mean, we have had a pandemic We've also, you know, we have a war on the continent. So in a way, would you really expect this to be the time of a slim down state or low taxes? Don't these factors point to the fact that you would have high taxes at the moment? Um, unfortunately not. If you look at what's driving up British taxes, the massive cost of welfare, for example, it costs a hell of a lot of money to keep 5 million working age people on benefits at a time of a massive worker shortage. To mess things up to that extent is a huge waste of money as well as a huge waste of of, um, human potential. Then Britain is unusually exposed to high interest rates, something like a quarter of a national debt is inflation linked, 
So when, when the rates go up, we spend a lot more money. So and then, of course, you've got the triple lock pension, pushing up our pension costs faster than those of other countries. So we have got various factors which have exposed your average taxpayer to far greater cost of the rising cost of government. Those, those rising costs are, to a horribly large extent, connected to decisions that have been made by Conservative chancellors over the years. Now, Rishi Sunak says he's going to do well for reform, but not at a pace that's going to make a meaningful difference. He's going to protect the travel lock and pensions, so I can't see any change there. So these factors, which do leave Britain, the British economy, weighed down by the sheer, the massive cost of government, don't seem to be lifted any time soon. And that's why, even when you look at um, today's revised economic figures, then yes, it does seem as if there was a faster recovery in 2021 and 2022. But the economy isn't moving this year, really. It's not really moving next year. And none of these upward revisions are really changing the fact that the economy is moving nowhere fast and the cost of living crisis is biting ever harder. And James, we often hear about the war on motorists, and it seems that Rishi Sunak wants to be on the other side of this. So what are we now expecting from him in terms of new measures that could come out at conference? Um, yeah, so this is following the net zero statement he made a few weeks ago. Um, there's reports today in some of the press that Rishi Sunak is planning to stop councils imposing 20 miles per hour roads. Obviously, this comes over the back of a lot of change in the uh, conservative policies from 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic in low traffic neighbourhoods. And now clearly, I think Rishi Sunak has decided to embrace the side of you know, motorists and to be seen as standing up for the little guy, uh, white van man, etc., playing into all those narratives, reframe it as being on the other side of ordinary voters. Fraser, is this a decision for the Prime Minister to make? Well, this is where devolution has its limits. I mean, lots of councils can impose 20-mile-an-hour zones. They're very popular with residents. Not so popular with motorists, especially ones who get sent to speed awareness courses if they get caught doing 22 miles an hour in a 20-mile-an-hour zone. Now, we can see spreads of this. We can see these zones being expanded in, in quite an alarming way. And I think this is a classic example of where central government thinks, look, this is unnecessary. Um, you're just pandering to residents. There's no the, the benefit of cutting to 20 miles an hour from 30 doesn't really weigh up against the economic benefit of allowing traffic to sustain through a country at a reasonable clip. So we're seeing limitations of devolution here. Every now and again, we have what I am always rather suspicious of, powers to constantly give more powers to the councils, etc. I've yet to see any example of this really yielding dividends for local people, either in Scotland or in Wales, where we've had devolved assemblies, or in the, the various um, the mayors. Again, where are the mayors being able to bring tangible benefits? If you look at um, like Birmingham, its council is just a disaster. It's going bankrupt. It's the last thing you want to do is give it even more powers. So... I see this as part of a, a move away from the devolution, which was politically fashionable from the mid-90s. I think we're, we're now working out that if it was going to deliver significant benefits for local people, it would have done so already. And quite often, central government in a relatively small island is a pretty good place to make decisions for the cost versus benefits in quite a lot of factors. 
I think also to look at the pragmatics of this policy, it doesn't cost any money to tell councils what to do. Uh, it, it gives the impression of a Conservative government with activity, enables them to reframe the conversation, and I think also puts distance between him and some of the Boris Johnson at Zero Agenda. So but it all makes sense from that argument. I mean, I'm reminded, of course, is just how uh, devolution is such a is, is such a difficult concept in a unitary state. I was talking to one uh, veteran Tory peer the other day about the abolition of the Greater London Council in the 1980s, and they put it simply, well, Margaret Thatcher hated Ken Livingstone. So very often, as Fraser says, it's not really about actually these great principles of devolved government, etc. It often comes down to political reality. And that is when the council is doing things that the Conservatives like and any party likes, they're happy to go along with it. But of course, when they're not, they want to change that. And that's what we're seeing today. I think the great mistake comes when you start to say we're giving more powers to Scotland, we're giving more powers to Newcastle, etc. No, the powers are being given to politicians politicians in London to politicians local. Local politicians tend to hoard and expand their powers rather than, in my view, what government should be doing is passing power from government to people directly, so to, to families, to patients, to allow communities to have more power over their own lives rather than have another layer of politicians giving them more power to interfere with their lives. That's why when the people of the northeast of England were asked if they wanted their own assembly, they rejected it quite emphatically. And that's probably why Australia, when it has its referendum as to whether to create a new consultative assembly for the Aboriginal people, they're likely to vote no as well, the no campaign being, of course, led by an Aboriginal woman. So we're seeing a sort of worldwide trend of the idea, which sounds good in theory, giving more power from central to local government, being rejected by people who feel they they just don't want more government in general. And that's what devolution tends to mean. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening. (laughs) 